welcome along. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to see. So, it is genuinely so nice to see everybody. It's so nice to see people. It's so uh, it's almost a relief to see God's church gathered again. And we are one small but lovely part of the church. So welcome along, uh, all of you. Genuinely lovely to see you. Um, we're in our new series, and uh, we're looking at holiness. We're going to relook at the subject of holiness. There are lots of different factors, I think, that keep us coming along to church, the aiders in our journey, that mean that we are here where we are now. Uh, for some of us, it's, it's something that we maybe grew up with. That's quite a big part of it. We heard the story at home. Um, for others of us, it's become a, a comfort. It's something that we come along to church and we find it a real comfort, and our Christian faith has been a comfort. For others of us, it's just, maybe we've not even stopped to even think about why, why we find ourselves where we are. For others of us, it feels really good. I definitely noticed that as we sung that last song. I was like, this just feels really good to be here. What it boils down to, though, and what will stop you coming if you stop and think about this uh, long enough, and this part of it is absent, it's the big guy in the sky, God. The God question is the big question. Loads of, loads of contributory factors that keep us ticking along that mean that we are where we are. But the big question means that at some point in our life, we have to either stare up at the, at the starry sky or we have to um, do the opposite of that and find ourselves alone in our bedroom. We have to ask the question, do we, who is God? What is this God thing? Um, a famous theologian, A.W. Tozer, who's well worth a read and well worth a read on holiness, says that the thing that comes into our minds, the first thing that comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now let me just let that wash over you for a second and see what things, or let you see what things are popping into your mind. I'll read the quote again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Maybe there's one or two of you panicking in this moment, doing a bit of a head scratch. Not trying to project that to me because I'll pick up on it or whatever else, but thinking, I don't know if I've ever thought about that before. I don't know what I think of God. I don't know if I could condense it into one sentence. Maybe I just think he's really big or he's really good or he's really strong. It's the most important thing about you is whatever that opinion is right now. If we're going to do God in 2022, we often are guilty of fashioning him into our purposes. Well, we often shape him and mold him. So we've done this at different points throughout history. We've, we've got this idea of God and we've, we've caused him to fit into our culture or into our own personal circumstance. So if you look back um, through times when we did the Crusades, and I say we, I'm not, it wasn't you. It wasn't really us, but it was connected to us, wasn't it? It's in our past. When we did the Crusades, when we went abroad, conquering nations, for various different reasons, we would think of God as a warrior. We'd think of him like that. And it really shapes what you do with yourself, if that's your, the first thought that you have of God that is a warrior. When we, um, when we had the Enlightenment a couple of hundred years ago, when scientists spoke up and started thinking, we changed our view on God again a little bit. We became a little bit more deist. Our, our perspective on God changed. Because we, we it, it got pretty tricky... And because we were challenged to think in different ways that we'd never thought before as we were enlightened, so to speak, we started to think of him a bit more as a God on a cloud, less connected with us, just some, something who set it all going and then was sort of absent from then on in. Nowadays, 
we prefer to think of a God of love, a God who can meet our own, because we're such individuals and we live in an individualistic society, we think about a God who can meet us right where we are just now. You'll often hear the expression, and I've been guilty of saying this, well, God, to me, God's like this. And we think of God in these terms. We choose a God, we structure a God, we fashion our God with whatever, whatever issue is going on in our lives right now, God becomes about that. With whatever goals that we've got, God becomes about that. With whatever our culture is saying more strongly to us now, God can become like that. And this really matters. Where we land on in this subject is huge. If we think God's just a warrior, we're going to end up fighting all the time. If we think he's just sat there away on the cloud, set it all off going, and now he's just kicking back, then we can really do whatever we like. It's hugely significant for our lives. How do we know what to think about him? How do we know what to think about God? How do we structure this opinion? How do we get to a point where when somebody like me asks a question like that, you've got something ready? You've got a sentence that means you can face the day. How do we do that? There's, there's loads. There's loads of information about him. We read through the Bible, there's loads of information about him. We look online, there's loads of information about him. How do we know what to do? If we look in the Bible, you might, you might skim through the Old Testament and you might go, he looks pretty angry in there. I mean, he does look a bit like a warrior. Then you get to the New Testament and you flip over completely. You go, he looks really kind of really, really nice in there. How do we know? How do we know? How have you figured this out? The Bible gives us some really great help. One of the ways that we can assess what God's like and start to form an answer, one of the clues that the Bible gives us is that when it's really important, when it's something we really, really need to know about God, it's repeated. So think back to the text that we've got up. It's repeated. Jesus does this. You might have heard, seen preachers 20, 30 years ago say, verily, verily, when they read the Bible. Truthfully, truthfully. Jesus, when Jesus starts off his sentences with like, like that, he's saying, this is really, really important stuff when I'm saying this to you. In the text that we've got up before us today, Isaiah 6, and we're going to keep coming back to this, this text, it's angels, terrifying, scary-looking angels, who all agree that God is holy, holy, holy. This is our new series. God is, I think the Bible says, right at the top end of how you're going to begin to understand him and assess how you're going to live your lives. He's holy. What do you think of when you think of holiness? Where does your mind go? My mind probably goes to the monastery, to a monk who's had some meat and he's trying to live a good life and has a gentle glow. Something, something, something like that. We think of somebody who's kind of good, kind of getting better and better and getting towards this point where they might become so good that they've got a bit of a glow about them. That's pleasant. And I hope you have many friends like this because they're probably nice to our friends. I don't think this is necessarily what holiness is. It's less something that's good and worked towards and it's more something that is set apart for a specific purpose. That's what holiness is. Something that is, and I'm not just mean out the way, I mean set apart, I mean completely separate, otherly to what we are. Um, one preacher I was listening to described it like how people of a few generations ago might think about their best china. So I don't know if this work, you know, I don't know if this illustration will work for you. Maybe think of your parents or your parents' parents, or maybe it's you. In my case, it's me. The best china. Does, 
don't, you don't have to nod or anything. I'm just going to ask out there if, you've, if, you've, if this is a concept that, that is familiar to you. When I grew up, there was the best china. It was kept in a cupboard that you, that me and my brother and sister just wouldn't go near. It was like, ah, it was like, it was like that, the best china. And when it came out, you were like, oh man, this is, this is a serious, this is a serious issue. And ordinarily, mine and my brother's job would be to set the table. But when the china came out, it was so significant and so different, we didn't get to set the table. In fact, we had, I remember, we'd look at this china that would come out before us, both me and my brother would look across at each other and almost begin to panic that we were going to smash it up as we were using it. The glasses were just so slender. How would we look across at each other and go, how are we going to drink from these without smashing them? Normally we're given big plastic things that anybody can use and now we've got these precious glasses. Why? It was, it was because this stuff was kept separate and as soon as we'd finished eating, again, we didn't have to clear the table this time, it would be washed up and put back. Why? Because of its purpose. Because it had a specific purpose. This was to present to our guests that we were a family who had it together. This was to show care and love. That's what the purpose of this was. The purpose of God's holiness is to bring the creation back to him. That's its purpose. God, we can think of God as being set apart specifically for this purpose, for bringing the creation back to him. In this text that we've got up before us, the angels that cry out, holy, holy, holy to our God are saying, him. When we think about creation getting back to being near him, he is the person to do this. He is the most set apart thing. The, the one thing that can achieve this is him. He's the one to do it. He's the one that can bring people back to being like God. He's the one that can mold people in that way. He's the one that can love people enough to change them in that way. He's the, he's the one. That's what they're screaming. It's him. That's what they're shouting. He's the one that's so set apart, he's going to be able to do that. But he's so set apart, he's so different, it's so perfect. Can you see in the text, you can see through Isaiah's reaction, the world winces when it has to see it. A bit like me and my brother, when we'd see the posh china coming out, we'd be like, whoa, I don't really want to touch this. I know that I'm going to break it. I know that I'm just going to smash it and my mum's going to kick off. I know that already because of the pressure that's on me, because of, because of its purpose and it's so significant. That is what God's holiness is like. And the picture we get of that just tells that story. There is... A king, it's, it's just absorb the picture for a second. God's holiness. We're supposed to be knocked back and stunned by it. And I think we are. God is set up high on a throne, like in all the pomp. And he's there because he's, he's able to be there. There's no irony there. It's like he's, he can be there and it's fine. He can, we can exalt him in that way. We can think of him all dressed up like that because he's able to judge and he's able to rule and he's able to govern. And he's got this robe that fills the whole of the temple. Do you see that in the text? His gown fills the whole place. And his, the angels, his crew, the people that come along with him, they just look at him and scream at him and they're blown away by him the whole time. And as a result of this, it's terrifying. It's so terrifying that anyone who claps eyes on this just collapses and breaks down. This is, this is what holiness is. This is how holy God is. God is so holy 
that for the for the people of Israel just to be in the vicinity of him, they had to wash. And they had to follow all sorts of crazy rituals. They had to have bloody sacrifices all of the time. It had put huge demands on them. They had to follow a list of rules as long as your arm just to be able to be in the same vicinity. This is God. This is what God's like. He's like this. He's holy like this. He's set apart in a way like this that causes huge change for anyone who happens to glance it, anyone who wants to encounter it. It causes us to wince, to not even to be able to look at it. In order for us to believe this, in 2022, in order for us to roll with this or for us to try and to hope that our friends might believe in it, we're going to have to soften the edges, aren't we? We're just going to have to not think about the holiness bit or we're going to, if we're going to deal with it, let's make it as soft and as palatable as we can. We're going to have to shape God again. We can't talk too much about this. It's just going to scare everybody off. It's going to scare us off. We need to talk about his nice bits. The bits that don't impinge so much on our life. The bit that less, that's less weird. This is what we do with God, isn't it? This is how we get by with God. When we go home after church, we try and refer God the comforter, God my friend, God up on the cloud who's got my best at heart, got my back. We, we, we try and shape him in that way. Here's the thing with that. And this is Isaiah's big beef really you can read a few chapters where he writes very funny poetry about this the gods that we create the gods that we shape that we doctor will never ever be enough for us they'll never save us any god that we shape any idol that we form it's never going to get us out of trouble because ultimately it's us (laughs) it's too full of us so there's an adage that helps me, that rings true and helps me make this point. And it encourages people, and it's a worldly wisdom, never to meet your idols. Have you heard that adage? Never meet your idols. And the wisdom behind it is, you've built up this amazing expectation of this person that's gonna change the world, and you've put them on this pedestal, and yet when you meet the person, this is how the wisdom goes. If you meet them for long enough, you're only gonna realize that they are just like you. I've had this a couple of times in my life where I've met someone who was an idol. I won't give the name away, but he was a fairly well-known middle-of-the-road Christian singer. And I met him in a lift. Is that an embarrassing idol of mine? Imagine having an idol that's another Christian guy, an idol of mine. And my conversation was so rubbish. My chat, I gave him lift chat. I said to him, these were my actual words. You know, I had this moment that I built up so hugely in my head because I knew I was going to meet him, and I was like, well, we'll talk about songs and God's meaning to us and all this sort of stuff. And I said to him, these are my words, it's a really great lift, isn't it? That's, that's what I said. That was my chat. And as soon as I'd said it, I was like, oh, there's no way back from such a rubbish start to a conversation. But I was more crushed by his response. He was like, I just need you to put that over there, is what he said to me. I was kind of his that handy man for the you know for his tour and all the rest of it i just need you to put that under and i was just crushed by the normality of this person that writes such beautiful poetry and has taught me so much about worship he was just a normal guy because the idols that we create for ourselves can't can't be any more than we are think about the greatest idol perhaps of the last maybe it's maybe our greatest ever invention the internet You could maybe come to me afterwards and say there's better inventions. Perhaps the greatest thing that humans have come up with, this amazing invention that allows you to buy something from the other end of the world and it can 
be back on your door in no time or you know, see what the weather is somewhere else. Amazing invention. And yet, what is it? It's just us. It's still us. It's just what we know about a thing or different ways for us to connect and show our photographs or different ways for us to fall out. Ultimately, it's amazing, but it's still just us. And it, it's not saving us, is it? It's not, it's not progressed us on anywhere beyond where we were, really. It's not, it's not going to save us inherently. In order for us to be saved, we need to see that the help comes from outside, not from us. Something that is different and set apart from us. We need to encounter that terrifying thing that Isaiah saw. We've got to go there. We need to go with Isaiah, stare up at the, the, the stars, open ourselves up to this God who is terrifying. We need to prepare ourselves to wander into that temple with him and, and break, fall on our knees as he fell on his knees. We need to go into a spot where we're willing to have this perfect God impose himself on us like the children of Israel had, had him impose himself on them. But like Isaiah, we have to look at, again at everything that we do. We have to reassess everything. It's enough. It's enough of a route, I think, that would scare anybody enough, anybody here, off coming to church. It would be enough for us to think, I don't... The concept of that, dealing with that in 2022, God's holiness in that way, such an offense, such an imposition. We'd get so far towards the temple, if that's the analogy that we're following, and say, I can't go down that religious road anymore, except, except that the story of the exalted God doesn't end with where he leaves us in Isaiah. It doesn't end with him staying exalted on the throne. The story of the God exalted carries on. So this is the last. If you're hanging on for the end of the sermon, this is the end. This is the last bit of the sermon. The New Testament leaves us with different pictures of the exalted God. It's still all true. Everything that we read in the Old Testament, God is like that. He is holy like that. And he's exalted like that. But we see other elements of his character and other elements of the other ways in which that holiness manifests itself. One, one of a, a collection of beautiful stories of God in Christ in and amongst the unholiness uh, we read about in Luke's gospel and it finds Jesus at a Pharisee's house. And this is one of those moments, what would happen with Jesus? He would be like a touring rabbi and he'd be touring along and then other rabbis, other well-to-do, you know, intelligent people would see him coming along and hear about him coming along and they'd say, come round to my house, come round and we'll have a chat. And it would be almost like a social climbing event for, for Hebrews. They wouldn't, you know, there was no, there's no money involved in this, but th these would be two intelligent Jews coming together and the, the throng would sort of listen around and they would debate the latest issues and it would almost be like, let's, let's hear these people come together. Let's hear these, the, intelli the intelligent uh, religious people come together and let's see who ends up at the top. This is, this is the setting. Who's going to be the most exalted at the end of it? Halfway through this story, um, the Bible describes it as a sinful woman comes in, maybe a prostitute, something like that. Somebody who's, somebody who's gone way off the rails, especially in terms of, of 
what it would mean to be living in that time. She comes in, and she comes in because she's seen Jesus before. She's seen him before, and she's seen that he is different. She's seen that he is holy. She's seen that in him, and seeing that in him has meant that she has just, this is an incredible story. What she does, she comes into the room, and she smashes open some perfume, and she wets it on her hair, and she, she wipes his feet, and she's, like, she's just having such a big, it's just a meltdown. It's like Isaiah. She's on the floor like Isaiah, broken by the fact that she's seen something different in this person. Now, in the ordinary run of things, at these events, what happens is you have the scene where the person breaks down, and then the protagonist in the story usher them outside, and they go, right, okay, let's get back to figuring out which of us is the most exalted, which of us is the cleverest, who can get to the top of this conversation, except that's not what Jesus does. Jesus has this broken woman weeping, washing his feet with her hair behind him, and he sticks with her. He doesn't shove her off. He doesn't beat up on her to get back to the top. He says, no, I'm going to stick where she is. I'm going to become her advocate. I'm going to stick up for her. I'm going to get people to think about things from her perspective. I'm going to show her some love and some care. This is what Jesus does. This is what he does over and over again, story after story. This is what God does over and over again. This is what gives us hope when we think about needing to face the holy. Because what we realize is the truthful picture of God exalted. The kind of God that can have a robe that fills the room. That can break everyone just with terror. Just with who he is. His holiness, that same God, loses the robe, comes down from his perch, puts his arm around us, and stays with us in our unholiness in a way that means that we can stay there in God's presence. This is what God does for us. This is what it means to have faith in a God. This is why holiness, though it's terrifying, should be something that we seek with all our hearts because as we investigate ourselves and as we consider some of the some of the places that our minds go to some of the things that we've done in the past we have a god who although he's completely separate from that drops it all to put his arm around us and be where we are the question is to leave with you at the end of the talk is what are you going to do with a god like that what are you going to do with an offer like that? How do we respond to love like that?